0: Hey, Angie Austin here. Welcome back to the Good News. We have Cindy, Monique, and Leah here, the Good News gals. And also joining us, Jay Ibsen is back. Jay joined us uh, quite a few months back, and we heard about his uh, journey. And uh, we wanted to have him back to talk more about what he's doing with his life. And uh, his life story involves uh, quite an adventure. uh, And, uh, Jay, we're happy to have you back. Thank you. All right, so Jay, my aunt met you when she went through your museum, and she said you have to talk to Jay. And of course, I reached out to you. Aunt Ginny uh, told me about you, and so kind of give us a synopsis of um, what uh, what you what your life's journey is because it's fascinating.
1: Well, when you're talking about synopsis, of uh, what year would you like to start?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wherever. What you tell people when they say, "Who is Jay Ibsen? What do you do?"
1: Well, most people recognize me by my cowboy hat and the emblem on the hat that uh, I and a friend of mine have designed. It's a menorah with six candles to commemorate the six million that died during the Holocaust. One candle is shorter for the one and a half million children. It has a star of David which we had to wear when we were in the ghetto and concentration camp. It has a—the Star of David is broken because the families were not reunited after the Holocaust. There was barbed wire all through the menorah for everybody that was incarcerated, Jehovah's Witnesses, gypsies, blacks, uh, anybody that did not suit the Nazi propaganda machine. And uh, it has some blue on it because some of us never lost hope, and it has red on it for the blood that was shed during the Holocaust. And most people recognize me uh, when I go to the community, they recognize the hat and then say, are you Jay Ibsen?
0: I lo- we're looking at a picture of the hat right now and what it stands for, uh, beautiful symbolism. Let's hear a little bit about your childhood and how um, you know, what, what you lived through and why that's helped to give you a passion for uh, your work in Virginia with the Holocaust Museum, et cetera.
1: Well, I was born in Lithuania in 1935. My father was a lawyer and my mother was a businesswoman. And as soon as the Nazis in 1933 passed the laws against Jews not being able to do many things, my father lost his practice because Lithuania adopted all the Nazi laws. So he could no longer practice law, and he went into the motorcycle business and was very successful at it. He started with three motorcycles— Uh, In 1938, and by 1941, his inventory was 40. And when the Russians came in, of course, they've got a fantastic policy. And this country, unfortunately, wants to move to that way. They took all our inventory. And everything that we had, the, the Russians took. So the whole motorcycle inventory, our bank account, and everything was gone and my father had to find a job so fortunately he was able because he was multilingual and everything get a job with a Russian cooperative of uh, transportation at that time most of the transportation was horse and wagon wow you want me to continue or you got yeah, no I uh,
0: yeah <laughs> you guys have questions <laughs> or what no continue continue
1: Okay, well, the Russians, of course, had made a deal with Hitler to divide up Europe. And when the United States and nobody stopped the Germans from going further up, they went into Poland, they decided they no longer needed the Russians. Uh, The reason they got together with the Russians is because the Russians had the biggest military in Europe. Well, when they no longer needed the Russians, they attacked. They came into Lithuania, and we tried to escape with a horse and wagon. Uh, I had a little six-month-old sister at the time. And during our escape, the Germans dropped paratroopers in front of us to keep us from escaping. Some of the Russian soldiers took through the field and managed to get into the woods and become partisans, and uh, the Jews had to return where they came from. On the way back, because of a six-month-old sister, my mother didn't have enough milk to breastfeed her. We stopped in a farmer's uh, place, and those days you got milk directly from the cow, no matter how it was. And, of course, it wasn't pasteurized as we have it and such. And the milk was contaminated, and as soon as we got back home, my sister died uh, from stomach poisoning. Mm. We were put in a ghetto in uh, Pridionpol, Slobodka, Lithuania, where everybody had to get in. 27,000 of us were put in a barbed wire compound to protect us, the Germans said, from our Lithuanian neighbors that were killing the Jews out in the street. And there were massacres continuously. So we all moved in in the barbed wire compound. And that's where we were until October 28, 1941. At that point, Twenty-seven thousand of us were forced out onto a field known as Democratic Square, and a German sergeant by the name of Rucker stood in front, had everybody lined up according to family units, went to the head of the family unit and asked him, What is is your profession then, Jude? If you were a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, a rabbi, you and your whole family were sent to the left. If you were a garbage collector, a cobbler, a ditch digger, anybody that worked with the hens, you and your whole family were sent to the right. In one night, Those on the left, 10,500 men, women, and children were executed. 4,222 children. My father, when he came to my father to ask what his profession was, my father felt that the right was better than the left. He said he was a car mechanic, he couldn't drive a nail straight, he was a lawyer and a businessman. (laughs) So Rucker told him to take his family and go right. We survived. The next morning, a German with a rifle came to our place where we were staying and said, I'm looking for the car mechanic. My father realized that if he didn't speak up, the whole family could be in danger. He spoke German, and he spoke other languages. So he told the German that he was the car mechanic. The German said, come with me. He took him four miles away from where we were, where there was an airport. He took him to the Kwanzaa hut, showed him a broken vehicle. He said, this is my vehicle. It's broken. Can you fix it? My father said, naturally, it's certainly not a problem. Well, how long will it take? My father said, oh, a couple of days. Figuring in a couple of days they would have to take him back inside the ghetto and he could ask his friends that do know how to fix a vehicle, how to fix it. The German said, I don't have a couple of days, fix it now. Well, what seems to be the problem? Well, you, the mechanic, you tell me. When I drive it, there is a banking underneath my vehicle. I don't know what the problem is. My father said, I tell you what, I'm going to lay down on the ground, face up, and you drive over top of me. Figured if it drove over top of him and killed him, that's a chance he had to take. Otherwise, he'd shoot him for lying because that was the norm my father laid down. The German drove over top of him and my father realized that the universal joint was hitting underneath the uh, vehicle and it left a mark. He told the German, I see what the problem is. I will fix it. Now, my father didn't know what kind of tools to ask for. So, He went into the tool room and told the guys, give me an adjustable wrench. With an adjustable wrench and his bare hands, he took the universal joint apart, put it in consequential order, took the biggest piece, went into the parts room and told the guys in the parts room, give me one of these. The guys in the parts room realized and saw what he needed, they gave him the proper universal joint with the proper tools and said, here. He went back under the vehicle, replaced the universal joint, tightened it up, went over to the German, said, I've got it fixed. Would you like to try it? The German got in the vehicle, drove it a couple of blocks, came back, said, you're the finest mechanic I've ever seen. You will now be the shop foreman. And here is a loaf of bread and some butter for you to take to your family. My father refused the bread and butter because bringing that in to the ghetto, that meant you were a smuggler. And for that, they executed you. So he told the German he couldn't take it. The German told him to get into the vehicle, the one he had just fixed, he drove them into the ghetto right up to the door of our house and watched him walk in the house with the bread and butter. My mother sliced off a small piece of bread, put some butter on it, and gave it to me. I took a couple of bites and ran out into the street. There were bigger kids there. They were also hungry. One of them came over to me and said, Jay, if you give me your bread, I will give you this small wooden airplane that i nailed together out of a couple of pieces of wood. I didn't have any toys. The Germans had taken everything I had, so it sounded like a good deal to me. I just had a couple of bites of bread. So I gave him the bread, grabbed the airplane, and ran home with it so nobody would take it from me. I'll let you figure out what my mother did to me for giving away my food for a couple of pieces of wood.
0: <laughs> so this this, you know, life you led with your family, obviously your dad saved the family by saying that he was a car mechanic rather than a, an attorney that has really led you to lead a life educating people about what happened during the Holocaust.
1: Well, my father was very really interested in passing on the, le- the lessons <coughs> of justice. So he originally started, uh, and I went with him because English, his English wasn't quite as good as mine, and we talked to one or two school classes. uh, Teachers had found out who he was and uh, then my father got sick and I took over and there was an exhibit at the Valentine Museum that I, during lunchtime, when people would come in to see the exhibits, I would give an explanation for about 15-20 minutes about the Holocaust. Bill Martin, who was the Uh, director of the Valentine Museum, which is a history museum here in Richmond, said, Jay, I've got a group of kids coming to the uh, museum. I would really love for you to give them a lecture on the Holocaust. Well, I joined the Army in 1954, so when they, somehow I don't know how it happened, but I was very skilled in certain fields, and my commanding officer discovered it, and I became an instructor for the 80th Division in the JAG detachment of the 2079th Infantry Unit. So I always used an overhead projector so that people would better understand what I was teaching. So I told Bill Martin, let me think about it, and I contacted the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., because I knew that they had gotten some pictures of things that happened in the Covna Ghetto. So I called them up, and I said, Hey, uh, guys, uh, that was to the people at the uh, archives. I said, This is what I remember in the Covna Ghetto. Do you have any pictures that fit what I'm telling you about. I'm getting ready to give a lecture to some kids, and I'm sure they don't want to listen to an old man talking. You need to show them something. They said to me, Oh, my goodness, your explanation is so vivid. We can give you 20 pictures right now. And sure enough, they sent me the pictures. They were taken by George Cardish, a guy that we actually knew, And he started, uh, the Washington Museum started before I started the one in Richmond. So I used those pictures. And when I took a look at those pictures, I found a picture of myself and my mother behind my grandfather in line to be deported for execution amongst 2,700 other Jews that were being deported from Covenant, Lithuania, to the Galatia. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, how could that be possible? I should find my own image. I must be imagining it. Well, my father was still alive, but he was retired. So I called him up. I said, hey, let's go out to lunch. He loved going to a Lebanese restaurant where on Friday, for him and some of his Jewish friends, they used to have fried trout that was kosher and they would sit down and eat. I said, let's go to Honesty's and have some lunch. I didn't tell them what my ulterior motive was. After we placed our order, I said, look, I've got to give a lecture, and I really would appreciate it if you help me identify some pictures so I don't make a mistake. You know, I don't remember everything. And I slipped in that picture among some of the other pictures that I knew about.
0: Oh tell us. Okay, we only have picture, two minutes, said, Jay. We only have about two minutes left. So what did he tell you about the picture? We're dying to know. I'm sorry? We only have like two minutes left, so I want you to what did he tell you about the picture?
1: He identified me and my grandfather. Amazing. And my mother. He said that's you guys.
0: So how how were, the, how were you not I'm killed? How were you not killed? How were you saved? Everybody Everybody except
1: my mother and me were the only two that survived. Mm. A Jewish policeman pulled me, that was a friend of my father's recognized me, pulled me out of line, and told me, get on the other side of the fence and take mother with you. Daddy will be looking for you. Wow. And that was the driving force behind a couple of friends of mine talked me into building the museum. And that's another long story. Right, and
0: that's another long story. Jay Ibsen, always wonderful wow. to speak with you. Again, my aunt was able to, in your home, uh, see the museum that you have set up there and hear your story. And she was so touched by that. Jay, is there a website where people can get more info? Uh,
1: Holocaust History Lecturer.
0: Holocaust History Lecturer. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. We'll Thank be right back. Jay.